0: I had booked this movie that was set to shoot in Joshua Tree.
1: This is Dominique Dawson, a costume designer for movies and TV shows. Dominique lives in Los Angeles, but for one movie shoot, she had to work out of Joshua Tree National Park, more than 100 miles away from L.A.
0: After being up there for a month and a half and having back-to-back night shoots, I was pretty depleted and just exhausted. And I did that drive back to L.A., Eventually I ended up falling asleep at the wheel and I ran my car straight into two parked cars. My car flew up over them both and landed upside down. That next day when I woke up in the hospital, I got a call from my producer and they were asking about the clothing that I had in my car.
1: Stories like Dominique's are all too common for people working on film sets. For many who grew up with dreams of working in Hollywood, the reality of life on a film set can mean grueling hours, unsafe conditions, and just pure exhaustion. Washington Post filmmakers Lindsay Sitz and Ross Godwin have been reporting on stories like Dominique's for a documentary called Quiet on Set.
2: So our 14 minute documentary kind of digs into the culture of the film industry from the point of view of film set workers. So people that are behind the scenes on our TVs and movies. And we're kind of looking at some of the normalized working conditions on these sets. Long days, sometimes 18 hour days, low pay, dangerous working conditions that are a result of those long, long days.
3: This is sort of really important right now, I think, because the Oscars are right around the corner, and most people, when they're watching the Oscars, are really drawn to the glitz and glamour, uh, the red carpet, actors, directors, these big-name people. But what none of that shows or really even addresses is all the blood, sweat, and tears of the hundreds of people who are grinding away to make the very things that are then being elevated on, on this massive production.
1: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. It's Friday, March 10th. I'm Arjun Singh. This weekend is the Oscars, an awards show emphasizing the fantasy and glamour of Hollywood. But behind the scenes, for the crew members producing these films, they often encounter dangerous working conditions, and in some cases even discrimination on their sets. Today, we're talking with Ross and Lindsay about the physical, mental, and emotional toll of being on a production crew. And just so you know, you're gonna hear some strong language in this episode. So please take care about when and where you listen. Lindsay, can you kind of paint a picture for me? Like, what is life on a set? What was day to day life like for people?
2: Yeah, so I think what you consistently hear from film workers is kind of unsustainable, consistently long days. That can range from 10 hours to 18 hours. Some people even, you know, that we interviewed for our doc work on like a weekly rate, which means that they could work more than 24 hours and get paid a flat rate. 24
1: hours in one row.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like like they basically are working until they get the job done. So if you think about somebody that's like a set decorator or a costume designer— there are certain people that work on flat rates and end up working wildly long hours to finish the job. And part of that, I think, is like a lot of these people we talk to also have such a strong dedication to craft. And I think paired with these conditions that are just unsustainable take a huge toll on your physical and mental health. You know, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of overwork. We heard a lot of stories about people that would wrap a day on set and might have to spend the night in their car because it didn't make any sense for them to drive home because it would just mean less rest. So they would sleep in their car, they would get up for, you know, call time the next day and roll into set. And um, I think that's kind of consistently what you hear. It's not always like that and not like that on every production, but it's very normalized to work these very, very long, exhausting hours.
1: I mean, those sound like some pretty dramatic things that are taking place behind the scenes, but I wonder... Why do you think that this was a story that you wanted to dig into? And why is it a story worth telling?
3: Well, there's, there's kind of two sides to that. On a personal note, myself and Lindsay have, both have a personal history of working in the film industry long before coming to the Washington Post. So this is a world that we're intimately familiar with and can relate to. But I think what, really, what, what struck us to make this was when the most recent contract was being renegotiated for the IATSE workers
0: of solidarity in Hollywood. Hundreds of people showed up to union parking lots in Hollywood to support IATSE members.
3: The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It's the umbrella union under which all the other unions in the film and television industry operate. People were so fed up with this stuff, stuff that had been happening for so long that there was a, a near universal push for us to, to authorize a strike.
2: Tens of thousands of workers, ranging from costume designers to electricians and video editors, are preparing for a possible strike on Monday that could stop the production of movies and TV shows nationwide.
1: What happened when the union decided to go on a strike?
2: Well, I think what happened first was COVID, um, and the industry kind of shut down. People realized that they wanted better in their working lives. They were rested. In 2021, when contract negotiations were happening between the union and producers, union members were pushing for better working conditions.
1: Union requests include reasonable rest periods, meal breaks, and living wages for those at the bottom of the pay scale.
2: In October, there was this big groundswell to authorize a strike. That happened, and the strike never happened because a contract was reached between the union and the producers
4: breaking news a massive hollywood strike averted and we just got a statement from
1: mayatze saying the deal includes a living wage for the lowest paid earners daily rest periods of 10 hours without exclusion and weekend rest periods of 54
4: hours the union is calling the resolution a quote hollywood ending
2: for members of the union and film workers the contract didn't necessarily address all of their concerns a few days after members voted whether to ratify the contract or not, the Rust shooting took place.
4: This happened after some of the unionized IATSE
2: below-the-line crew members had walked off the set of Rust earlier on the day
4: Helena was killed to protest their housing, payment, and working conditions.
3: I think there was a lot of things that went wrong on Rust, and it's not necessarily all tied to the specific issues that that we're talking about here on a systemic level, but the fact that people were walking off set because they were looking around saying, there's some unsafe situations here. I don't feel comfortable being here. And being willing to walk off set is probably indicative of some systemic problems. And, and Rust is something of an indie feature. So it's not a huge, huge mega budget, which means that there's, it's very likely that there was a lot of cost-cutting measures, trying to squeeze more out of fewer days, hire people who are maybe not the top, top dollar people.
2: Less experienced.
3: Less yeah. experienced, particularly the armorer. But nonetheless, they, they made a critical error. Like their job was to do a thing and it didn't go right. And somewhere along the chain of getting the gun to the into the hand of the actor and fired, there's supposed to be a lot of safety checks and a lot of redundancies to prevent exactly what happened. And somewhere along the way, that chain was broken. And that could have been a number of reasons. But I don't think it's unreasonable to suspect that pressure to rush, long days, you know, people make mistakes. You know, this is what we went... Going back to what we were saying before, you work a lot of long days, little things start dropping out of your mind. You, you make little mistakes here and there, and they can accumulate.
1: Yeah, and it seems like the rush shooting in retrospect really came at this interesting time with all these union negotiations taking place. What else were union workers fighting for? Like, what do they want to change, and what do they think was a sustainable solution to that, Ross,
3: The main changes were around – wages and turnaround times, rest periods, that sort of thing. And I think one of the big things they were trying to push for was to try to bring streaming wages, you know, their contributions to pension health, that sort of thing, up to where it was for theatrical and television productions. At the same time, try to address these kind of crazy work hours and these crazy turnarounds. It was such a big deal, I think, that there was like an overwhelming support to, to strike to get these things. And mm-hmm. because of COVID, all of those things really came to a head. But I think the main goal was they were really trying to, to fix the wage gap between streamers and theatrical things to get better rest periods and, um, and turnaround times that were more conducive to a healthy work environment.
2: I was also going to add, I think there were also a lot of people pushing for more equity and representation in Hollywood, which is, you know, very much still a white male space. The camera operator that we spoke with, Hassan Abdul Wahid, one of the things he was pushing for was really hoping that there could be consequences for sexist actions on set, racist actions on set, which is something that I don't think has
4: been addressed. I don't want there to be any more slaps on the wrist. I want there to be sanctions. I want it to be public. I want people to have like this transparent union where they could say like, hey, This person has been messing with me because of my sexuality, and I want something done. I want this stopped. I want them sanctioned. And I want people to see that happen and to know that this, you know, the union has your back on these issues. You're not alone.
1: You know, and Lindsay, you guys talked to a lot of different people to make this documentary. Can you tell me a little bit about, like, who the people you were talking to were... What kinds of positions did they hold on film sets? And what did they tell you about their own firsthand experiences? How did these working conditions impact them?
2: So for our documentary, we spoke with five union film workers. Um, Chili Nathan was one of those film workers. They are a set decorator, um, which means that they spend time designing the worlds that characters live on, on movies and TV. I started out as an unpaid intern Um, so I just worked for free, but it was just like, it was just, I couldn't deal with the vibe at the time.
1: When Chili says the vibe, what are they referring to? What is the vibe? and, And is that something that a lot of people inside the film industry can say, I know exactly what they're talking about?
2: I feel like I remember Chili talking about their time in the camera department and how it was such a male-dominated space. And as someone that does not identify as a male, uh, there was a lot of, and we've heard this from women in the camera department and, you know, non-binary people in the camera department, you kind of have to prove yourself if you're not a man in the camera department. There's a lot of, you know, overlooking of, your potential skill set. You had to, like, look like a cheerleader to get a job. So you were really there for the entertainment of the other camera dudes, and it wasn't about really your skill set. So I'd be up on a crane with a DP, and we'd be shooting something, and he'd start talking about that, you know, the actress's tits and, like, can't wait to see those tits or something. I mean, it was just, like... Uh, It was just awful. Just sexist conversation happening, like locker room talk happening in the camera department that they just, they, they did not like it. And so I think that was a big part of their decision to kind of leave that space. They left for a little while and then came back into the industry and decided to pursue, you know, art department sorts of things.
1: After the break... I talk with Lindsay and Ross about what happens when crew members try to push back on set. We'll be right back.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it. And why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
1: You know, when I think of Hollywood, Los Angeles, I think of all of these open conversations that seem to be had about representation and equity on screen and what we as the public see. And in one way, it's surprising to hear that inside of the sets, they're really grappling with problems that, you know, you don't always associate with somewhere that seems to be as open as Hollywood. How widespread are these hidden dangers on film, if you will, for you know, minority staffers, people of color, people who are non-binary?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think when you talk about this difference between a fight for equity on screen, I think the big difference is we see what's on screen and we don't see who's in post-production. We don't see who's on the editing, you know, in the editing suite. We don't see who's behind the camera. As consumers of media, we don't see that. So I feel like that invisibility really, it takes much longer for those inequities to be addressed Um, because I think a lot of the public doesn't realize how inequitable those spaces are. There's a lot of nepotism in Hollywood. There's not a lot of accessibility for people that don't have an uncle or a dad or somebody else that is already working in the industry. So I think there's a big push in the different folks that we talk to that are hoping that this changes for there to be training programs, more accessibility for people to get into the industry without going through some of those traditional routes that have kind of built the industry that we know now.
1: Have people tried to speak up on set? And I mean, what happened to those conversations?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of the people we spoke with, we heard a number of stories about people trying to speak up for themselves or someone else on set. So we also spoke with Sabrina Jimenez, who is an assistant editor, and she works in post-production. So she works, you know, in the editing suite with editors, with the whole post-production team.
4: On this particular occasion, the conversation was brought up by a movie that had recently come out and an article that discussed that Elsa from Frozen can possibly be queer, gay. And this comment triggered a response from my coworker that was not favorable. And they had responded to that comment by saying that homosexuality is wrong.
2: When this happened to her, she tried to speak up and say something about it. And there were not many people on her side. The other difficult thing was she didn't necessarily know exactly who to bring it to. You can speak with the producers. Do you talk to the studio that's producing the movie? Do you go to HR? It's, it's kind of difficult to know who to speak to. I think that's part of the culture is maybe you laugh it off or you suck it up mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily talk to your producer, your manager, whoever about it. And
3: it's important to mention that Sabrina herself identifies as bisexual. I think she did take it to her superiors and kind of got a reaction similar to what Lindsay was describing earlier, sort of this like, oh, she's causing problems or whatever.
4: I was met with immediate backlash for bringing it up. I feel like I actually made more enemies after that.
3: It didn't result in a net gain or a net positive in her working environment. It Mm -hmm. generally made things more difficult for her. And not just in the job that she was going in, but when she tried to change positions... She was told, I think, quite candidly by a colleague, "Hey, this person had, you know, who was recommending you for the job had nothing nice to say about you," and it was tied to mm-hmm. the fact that whoever this person was, the superior was sympathized more with uh, the insensitive colleague than with S- Sabrina's desire to raise the issue and, you know, feel heard. That thing, if taken to to an extreme, can lead to a blacklisting. Just for saying, hey, I, I don't feel comfortable with the way things are being handled or the way people are talking to me, that can make you a difficult asset, a difficult employee, and that can really hurt your ability to advance.
1: Why is the onus on individuals to speak up? Because what is the role of the union in all of this? Has the union tried to make things better for the staffers or is the union also not really able to push back?
3: So one of the things that uh, we would hear a lot was that it's not so much that IATSE was unsympathetic or not even trying to help, but it, there was limits to what they could do. And, and then the other side of it is when they say they found something, then their action was like, all right, well, they would find the set or they would they would, they would would take action. Well, now you're hurting the production. You're costing the money. You're getting people in mm-hmm. trouble. You're getting people fired. Again, it's if it's because of you rattled the cage, now the production is suffering in some way now your problem has only multiplied because now you're, again, you're you're considered a difficult asset. So it disincentivizes that person from making an official stink about it because the blowback might be worse in mm-hmm. the long term of their career than just enduring an uncomfortable set in the present.
2: And I think on top of all of that, you're still trying to make a movie within, you know, the days set for you. So it's like, this might be happen- happening to you at work, but then you still have your job that you're doing. When do you even have time to bring that, you know, concern to a higher level?
1: Is IATSE aware that these issues do happen on set, and do they offer any sort of remedies for them? So yeah, IATSE, I think, is aware of this stuff. Um, They've said as much. I think
3: they've uh, expressed that they are very sensitive to these issues, and they will be focusing on them um, in their upcoming 2024 contract negotiations. Um, And they have systems that seem to acknowledge this, this sort of issue and this dichotomy, there is a, a tip line, an anonymous tip line, that is designed to, to hopefully circumvent the, the singling out, which is sort of the main issue uh, that people face when they speak out. But again, if you're, if you're the only person or one of only a couple people on a set of a certain persuasion and the issue being raised is related to that, um, it's not terribly difficult for people in productions to, to sort of figure out what's going on potentially. Um, and so that's still a problem that they're working on trying to figure out, and that's just kind of a very
1: difficult one to, to solve. Given all of the things that you're describing, I can't help but wonder what keeps people working on film sets? Why, why go through all of this, and, and what were the things that people told you? And I'll ask you, Lindsay.
2: Yeah, we heard a number of different answers for this. I think some people grew up loving movies. Um, you know, Sabrina talked about how she she's a child of immigrants and she learned English by watching movies. So she has this really deep connection with American pop culture. And I think the reasoning she gave was that she wants to be a voice. If she can show that people like her can tell stories and be and be editors, she wants to keep doing this and kind of be that point of inspiration for people. Other people just absolutely love the craft. Like um, one person we spoke with, um, Dominique Dawson, who's a costume designer, she grew up watching Hollywood movies with her, her mom.
0: I've just always been captivated by old Hollywood. Gorgeous suits and dresses that the women wore of that era always mesmerized
2: me. She said at the end of our piece, you know, even knowing all of these things about the industry, that's out the window. I'm... I'm going to I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep working in this industry because I'm wow. so passionate about it. Yeah. And I think it's really that passion that keeps people going.
0: Knowing that the film industry has some drawbacks at times and can be quite taxing on the human spirit. I know all of that, but I'm so passionate about it. That's out the window.
1: Is that passion though able to be flipped on them at the same time? Is that something that people describe to you as being part of these pressure campaigns you had talked about earlier?
3: Yeah, um, and it's not just you—the know, individual who might feel like, "Oh, this is my passion. I want to do this." If you ever do hit a limit, say you hit a wall, and you say, "Like, I, I, you know, I, I won't put up with that." There's a line of young people with equal or even greater passion waiting for their opportunity, and they just need somebody to drop out to take it. There's a great anecdote that we didn't get to put into the into the um, the piece that Zach Arnold, who's an editor uh, we talked to, told about when he was new to the industry and talking to somebody who had been in there for a long time his friend was saying how they were working to try to finish this major big budget Hollywood production and it was pushing everyone to the very edges and the very limits. And, he, and they, they went to the producer, the guy in charge, and they said, hey, hey we got to do something about these hours. People are dropping like flies. And the guy just looked at him and says, all right, we'll get more flies. And that attitude is sort of, I think, sums up a lot of the problem from a top-down point of view. They see a swarm of flies. Like they don't really mind if a few of them drop here and there because there's always going to be another one. And as Zach even says in the piece, you know, as long as people are willing to meet the expectations set ahead of them and are willing to be exploited, there's no incentive for that, for that relationship or that
1: dichotomy to change. Quite on set, you've just published this. What is something that you want movie-going audiences and television viewers to take away from your documentary?
2: I think I just want people to think about the people behind the camera next time they turn on, you know, Netflix or go to the movies. Just to think about how many people it took to make what you love and to know that there are a lot of people behind that screen.
3: Yeah, um, I think for how much people lean on and enjoy and really get a lot out of TV, movies, and, and media in general... To have a better understanding of how the sausage is made so to speak maybe take a minute to like let the credits run a little bit and i think um just having that in the back of your mind really just makes it frankly a more impressive thing in itself anyway but also helps you understand that like you know if i'm finding out that people are getting pushed around maybe i will you know vote with my dollars in terms of how i'll who i'll support or not but really just being more empathetic to the people working behind the camera
1: well Lindsay and ross thank you both so much for taking the time to talk to me today Thank, Thank you. you
2: so much.
1: Lindsay Sitz and Ross Godwin are filmmakers with The Post. Their documentary is called Quiet on Set. We'll have a link to that in our show notes. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Jordan Marie Smith produced this story. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores... Ted Muldoon, Martine Powers, Elahe Izadi, Lucy Perkins, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnick, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Sfernowski, Sabby Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.